All right. So good evening in German time, everyone. I'm happy to see you all here and I'm a little bit nervous about having a first time online study group for particularly for this book, Radiant Joy, Brilliant Love, which is out of print now. I couldn't even get one myself. So I'll be, I'll be reading from uh, the original PDF that I have. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah, there it is. And it's being, it's being reprinted as a new book. Thank you. <laughs> it's being reprinted with a different title. The publisher decided to give the book a different title called Building Love That Lasts. And I, I tried to argue with the publisher about the new name because the author is a guy who's been divorced twice. And the question might come to the reader, how could it possibly be that some guy who's divorced two times is, is writing about building love that lasts? And I don't have a real smart answer for that question. Although I do share that when I wrote the book, Radiant Joy, Brilliant Love, On monogamous marriage and I didn't realize that at the time I was inside of this construct called monogamy before I was married in 1980 I was not in that construct if I look back on my in my years in my 20s it was clear I was not subscribed to the construct or submitting myself to the construct of monogamy but was the moment that I got married, and the door, I slammed the door shut, and there was this construct. And my parents had done it. My wife's parents had done it. My second wife's parents had done it. And so my environment around me was a monogamously contexted environment. And without realizing it, I was inside of that construct. And I'm not saying anything particular good or bad about the construct. I do want to say, though, that the book Radiant Joy, Brilliant Love is written out of pain. It has a, it's about pain, which is very different from suffering. So what I mean by pain is that it has a lot of feelings in it and emotions in it. And I, I speak to the feelings and emotions in the reader. I try to speak to those parts of each reader. We can go on this journey together through the book, through these three domains of love. And so um, without that pain, I could not have written the book. So the pain included at the time, 25 years of monogamous partnership. And there was a kind of, there was a pain in there that um, was not about love not happening. So I'll just say this little phrase at the beginning that after 25 years, I realized I learned, you know, 
I'm not known to be a really fast learner. So I was like a slow learning process that relationships, intimacy does not die from a lack of love. Intimacy dies love from a, from a lack of intimacy. Let me say that again. <laughs> relationships do not die from a lack of love. Relationships die from a lack of intimacy. And so, so it became very important for me to start learning how to create and navigate intimacy. And so if this, if this conversation that we're having or the meeting that we're having or the study group that we're having is about anything, it is really about how to create and navigate intimacy because love is there and love doesn't go away. I mean, my theory is that modern divorce lawyers make their living by trying to get people who actually still love each other to hate each other so they can justify splitting up their relationship. And that's a heavy duty process to go through because it's basically impossible because the love doesn't die. What dies is our ability to be intimate. And there's a lot of things that turns out that can influence that. So this book is mostly about how to grow up and how to learn about the ways that we unconsciously sabotage and undermine intimacy and ways that we can do something else. And so I'm really excited to have this hour and a half with you guys tonight. And I just want to say that I don't know how long we can do this. I know that we can start now and have the Monday night study group for the book. And um, it's just that we're basically in lockdown here in southern Germany for an un undetermined amount of time. And I'm, I'm fine with that. I, would, I don't think I would be able to do the study group if we weren't in this situation. And so in any case, uh, we'll go for as long as we can. I, don't, I, I was in a study group before, and it was one of the highlights of my week. And we were going through a very fat book. And we spent two and a half years getting through one book. So I just want you to know that as we go along, in, in the reading, if you have a, a kind of a question or a, an urgency, an urgent kind of question, just put your hand up and, and I'll read until there's a, a, a good place to break and then we'll, we'll go there because I, I really think this is a lot about your questions. I've learned a lot since I wrote this book and I was complaining to people about that. And and I, I said, look, I'm going to rewrite the book. They said, don't you dare. Don't you even think about it. And I said, well, I, why not? And they said, because where you wrote this book is a, a doorway. It's exactly where a lot of people are and that they need the book to be that exact doorway. So don't just go, just go write another book. Just don't even touch this book. So I submitted myself to their request. So I'm writing other books. <laughs> but I still, the value of this book has always touched me. It's, like, it's almost like I was grabbed by the back of the collar and, and like sat down in front of the computer in this intense two-year writing period and, and another intense one-year of editing period where the, 
the editor was a woman in Arizona and she, after she went through this editing process of this book, she goes, I will never edit another book with you. I go, why? She goes, because I was in so many liquid states trying to edit this book. I will never edit another book from you. <laughs> so, and she was a, she was a great woman. So she's a great woman. So I, I, um, I believe her. So I, I will start now unless cause I don't see any hands up about anything in particular. And I'd like to start with uh, the dedication of the book. Because the dedication is very short and simple. It says, the, to the one who pushes the ones who push the pens. The book is dedicated to the muse. And I stand by that. Because it wasn't Clinton Callahan who wrote this book. It was really a book that was written out of necessity, and I just I just put myself in a position of being a conveyance, uh, like a a conductor for for this stuff. And so I think I I can't even begin to say how much I learned while writing the book. I like to read the acknowledgments. I am grateful to Pauline Eiko Lamprecht, who first introduced me to the experience of countenance. Without warning, one Monday afternoon in a noisy smoke-filled Viennese cafe in the fall of 1994, as my reality horizon expanded into infinity and I could hardly breathe, she calmly said that she never opens this door for anyone. She just waits until someone visits. Just to be clear, this term countenance is not explained yet, but later on in the book it will be explained. I don't consider it cheating if you read ahead. The book has an excellent index. I know that because I made it myself. So you're, you're, I welcome you to go ahead and sneak read ahead. I, I continue with the acknowledgments. I am grateful to Meili, who is Aiko's teacher, who obviously trains her students with a rare deference. I'm grateful to Clinton Callahan Jr., my father, a king, who read this whole manuscript out loud to my mother, Virginia, at a time when she can't read anymore, just so she could hear what it says. I did it. I'm grateful for my ex-wife, and my not ex-daughters, and every person who has ever encouraged me to learn more about love. I'm grateful to Sue Nestor, who spent hundreds of unpaid hours transforming piles of badly recorded talk tapes into words on paper that built the foundation for this project. I'm grateful to Tillman and Dagmar Neubrunner, a genius verlag in Germany, whose unmitigated enthusiasm for our work and for revolutions in general helped entice this book out of the womb. I'm grateful to Regina Sarah Ryan and the Home Press team who excel in the compassionate art of working kindly with cantankerous authors to make a better book. 
I'm grateful to Werner and Hannah-Laura Lutz, whose creative financial ideas and simple exuberance for life greatly supported the final writing of this book. And to E.J. Gold, who moves faster than the speed of evolution for the benefit of all beings everywhere, and his student, Mike McDonald, for all those hours talking to me about responsibility under the streetlights on the far side of midnight. Anyone who has ever tried or even wanted to try to write a book that would somehow help people, I'm, I'm grateful for them because many of those books have helped me. And I'm grateful for everyone who participated in Possibility Manager Laboratories experimenting together to discover what works and what does not work. I'm grateful for Marion Lutz for being the listening into which radiant joy, brilliant love could be written. And I'm grateful to Lee Lozowick, a man who has many secrets, but none worth telling, because he knows that a person keeps only what they authentically discover themselves. You are a space through which archetypal love does its work in the world, which is just my opinion. This manuscript was completed only because you said, I want to see the book. Where the words are best, the words are yours. Thank you for never ceasing to kick the ass connected to this one. Doing a little clicking here. To, there we go. It's no secret. A man tells me he wants to leave his wife because they have not had sex in a year and the relationship is dead. Well, what did they expect? The couple had no chance from the beginning. It is not their fault. They were given no classes about how to stay ecstatically in love. No guidance for enduring intimacy's intense delights. How could they have learned to create anything different from what was modeled by their parents? The couple tries to have relationship, but the man does not know how to protect his woman's feminine dignity. How could she risk revealing her true sensuality to him? He holds no safe sanctuary for her to unfold into. The man has no reference point for directing his attention or keeping his center, no connection to his feelings at all. He does not recognize that the thinness of his personality is his true source of power. The man could use uncertainty as a way for making right-angled turns at light speed bringing his woman along for the adventure. ...as a handicap and masks it with a show of toughness or professionalism. He turns to whatever the culture offers to provide, to prove his manliness, an expensive car, a corner office, the latest mobile phone. But the man himself remains adolescent, having undergone no rite of passage to shock pulses of life into his archetypal mass.
So the revolutionary in him who could make changes to benefit the world watches videos instead. The courageous inventor who could generate wonderful new viewpoints to lift the hearts of humanity goes gambling. The noble leader in him stays home and masturbates. Like the rest of us who attended school, he has never been forced to sever his internal connection to deep imagination. I just want to say it again. Like the rest of us who attended school, he has been forced to sever his internal connection to deep imagination. So no flood of dynamic nonlinear actions brings his life to life. He is dead. He is dead. He thinks of his woman as something to consume, like a candy bar, like a movie, like a plate of food that you can send back to the cook if you don't like it, instead of something to create, like a possible goddess, like a temple of tenderness, like a trembling love poem. Forced to constrict himself to a mental world, it's no secret that the only ecstasy he feels is intellectual. Thus blinded, he forfeits his natural gifts for unlocking the sensual feminine being before him, aching to explore worlds of sexuality beyond his wildest dreams. How are we doing? Janet. I have a question. Um, so if there are parts in the book that are different than what you read, do you want to know or do we just want to, I can find my place. I think you skip through. I am reading from a PDF file that I sent to the publisher. So I don't actually know what version this is. So um, I have ordered a book or actually Phyllis is sending me a book or has sent a book that should get here by the time we uh, by the time we meet again next Monday. So then I'll be reading the actual book. So I don't need to know at this point, but thank you. All right. I just need you to know that while I'm reading, I'm looking at the, the words and not at you guys. And I prefer to look at you guys, but I didn't memorize the book. So I'll, I'm going back to the book. I have a question. I do. do you want to create any kind of just uh, glamour around hetero, hetero norm um, normativity. I mean, I, I'm guessing this is going to be pretty heterosexual. Just kind of get just. <laughs> yeah, I would encourage you to put that kind of consideration on a side shelf. And there will be times when you could ask a specific question about that that would maybe be useful. But in terms of languaging stuff in the book, we won't go there just going to stay men and women and you can interpret that any way you like but um yeah is that okay for an answer right now yeah. mm -hmm. tina you have a question yes hi yes thank you yeah regarding what uh Janet before me said, yeah, the minute I opened up, saw the introduction and saw uh, pictures only of uh, men and women, 
Uh, that a bit irritated me. I just wanted to you know, be honest and enjoy mm -hmm. that. But what I wanted to ask Clinton is that, uh, yeah, I mean, we can interpret men, women as we want, but the, you know, the principles or the uh, possibilities, uh, you know, uh, um, in, in this book are valid to any kind of intimate relationship, right? Yes, as far as I know. Yeah, okay, just wanted to make sure. Yeah, there are many distinctions in the book that apply in every single basically moment of your life, whether you're trying to relate to yourself or to one other person or a group of other people. And uh, there, there are huge, powerful distinctions for that and support of that. And if you get irritated enough, I really would love you to write, write your book. Yeah, maybe. maybe. Maybe one day. Yeah, because there's, there's so much. Really, I look at this book, people look at me and they go, this is a fat book. I go, this is a scratch on the surface. There's almost, you know, this is the beginner's basic handbook. And so uh, please, please dive in and share what you discover with other people because there's so much to... There's so much treasure in, in the domain of love, the domains of love. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Here we go. So I, here's one little hint. What I found really great in a study group is to, is to consider this as food. So the stuff that's, that we're reading is food. And so let it, let it feed whatever parts of you need this food and like what i find is after a couple of weeks of this i'm looking forward so much to monday night study group because it's like i'm i'm hungry for that particular meal because i don't get it anywhere else so if you can think of it as food not simply as ideas in your mind but really five body food i i was the editor regina sarah ryan she commented she says you write alchemically you're not writing to the mind, you're writing to, to the, for transformation. And so that was, I felt a good way to describe it. So if you just think of it as food for other bodies, then it will just go in in a different way and nurture you that way. Okay, I'm in the introduction. If you could learn to create intimacies that led directly to true love, would you be willing to start over again in relationship? If the love your heart and soul yearned to bathe in was proven to be a direct result of certain behaviors rather than a fantasy, would you be willing to forget your hopelessness, forgive your partner, and try again? If clear, practical instructions could be given for journeying to radiant joy and brilliant love, would you begin the practices? That is the challenge of this book. What are you willing to actually try? The main idea of this book is quite simple. From moment to moment, no matter who you are relating to, you choose one of three kinds of love to set the tone for your relating, ordinary, extraordinary, or archetypal. 
our culture, modern culture, it's not, I don't call it our culture anymore because I know, I know that you guys have, have left that culture behind in many ways. So I used to call it our culture, but since I no longer have a, an American passport, I have a German passport, since I discovered that it's possible to create a nanonation and I've essentially moved into a nomadic nanonation called Possibilica, it isn't our it isn't our culture anymore. So I will reinterpret that while we're reading along to say modern culture. So modern culture does not teach us to distinguish among ordinary, extraordinary, or archetypal relationship. So you have a little clarity for consciously determine you have little clarity for consciously determining the quality of relationship that you are creating in each moment. If the possibilities offered to you in this book were already provided by modern culture, you would not need to read. You would already be living in radiant joy and brilliant love. There's a diagram called Navigating the Space of Relationship. And, and it just has a box with a guy sitting in there with a steering wheel. And that box is the space of your relationship. It's, it's the context and the possibility of your relationship. And you can drive it in any of those three domains. You can drive it into ordinary human relationship, extraordinary human relationship, and archetypal relationship. You are designed for all three of these. And choice is really up to you, up to us, up to each person. This is incredible information. I mean, what a gift. What an amazing thing. I continue. A culture can only teach the level of relationship skills that are already woven into its fabric. To learn more, you must venture beyond traditional limits. Modern culture does not teach you how to go beyond its own limits. It could, but it does not. In many ways, modern culture takes our dignity away, subjugates women, deceives men, and prepares us for a lifetime of relational mediocrity. Without consciously taking actions that seem unusual by modern culture's standards, you will rarely, if ever, leave the familiar but heartbreaking conditions of ordinary human relationship. This book recognizes your interest in discovering further possibilities. This book is strong support for people, people whose success and joy comes from creative rela relating with others, including parents, managers, nurses, educators, entertainers, stewardesses, therapists, trainers, waiters, public speakers, caregivers, leaders, consultants, customer relations personnel, climbing expedition members, astronauts, sports teams, personal development coaches, spiritual students, mediators, directors, healers, filmmakers, conductors, salespersons, counselors, or anyone longing to enter these vocations. This book supports you in taking a different series of actions, actions that shift your relating into new worlds of relationship. Years of experimenting confirm that the human body, mind, heart, and soul thrive in a breath by breath and glance by glance, whole body experience of radiant joy and brilliant love. An endless abundance of love 
can be directly experienced by any human being who prepares himself or herself. It is specifically this preparation that interests me. As one of my heroes, Buckminster Fuller said, and I will rephrase what he said into the, my new understanding. I updated his, his little saying. He says, you never change things by fighting the existing game worlds. He says the existing reality. You never change things by fighting the existing game worlds. To change something, build a new game world that makes the existing game world irrelevant. This book is about building new models for relationship. So he said in his quote, he said, um, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Well, current models in modern culture are already obsolete. So you don't have to make them obsolete. They're exterminating life on planet Earth at the fastest possible rate. They are already obsolete. So what you're doing when you build new game worlds and new do experiments and open up new territory for people to go in. That's why I ask you to write books and articles and videos and things it's for you to do it because you build the territory for people to go into where into next culture because modern culture is already obsolete. And when you build the bridges to next culture, you make modern culture irrelevant because people can just go across your bridges. I consider you all to be bridge builders and I feel glad honored to be talking to you tonight. The challenge. This book is a call for men to grow up and for women to wake up. Life in a patriarchy, the form of modern culture, does not require men to grow up. Since the patriarchy protects adolescent men from the consequences of their actions, adolescence never matures. As a result, much of what the patriarchy promotes is irresponsible, designed for short-term indulgence and consumption, rather than for long-term holistic sustainability. The patriarchy does not introduce men to the wide and creative future that is crying out for mature masculine intelligence. Men are not shown that there are more challenging aims than how to maximize quarterly profits. A man discovers who he is and what his life can actually be about through growing up and struggling toward authenticity. These discoveries allow a man to find his power and his destiny in the world and to experience the rewards of being aware of and taking responsibility for creating the possibility for a woman to become woman. And now I would say today, I would say, for a safe space for a woman to, to, to awake, to become awake, like to unleash her full potential. This book is a call for women to wake up and for men to grow up. Women are smarter, faster, and in many instances, stronger than men. Women live longer and have better orgasms. Women have known this about themselves all along but have also been using it to complain and manipulate. It is now time for women to own their strengths and put them to use responsibly. It is a waste of effort to try to beat the patriarchy at its own game. Women can, of course, but what do women get if they play the men's games better than the men? 
they get more of what they already do not want. Fear, hatred, and aggression from men. The invitation in this book is for women to play a different game. Play woman. Woman can enact and serve the archetypal feminine even within a patriarchy. A woman as women distinguish between feminine and masculine power and take more and more possession of feminine responsibilities, they will find that they have jobs of the highest importance to do with plenty of power and challenges, not the least of which is bringing men into the experiencing a greater depth and breadth of intimate relationship. Every word in this book is written with men and women readers. And I just want to make a little note here that when I first wrote the book, it was, it, was the, it was the editor, Regina, who said, you wrote it for the men, now write it for the women. And I really, I, I went through, I cried, I went through, I'm about ready to cry now. I went through so many liquid states to like, who am I to write anything for women? And she just said, shut up and write it. And so I just committed to following her feedback and coaching. So a lot of times when I'm speaking to women or for women, it's because a woman took a stand for me to do that. So every word in this book is written for both men and women readers. If even if a section seems written specifically for women, it is actually intended for both men and women and vice versa. In other words, read the whole book. Most of the clarity and perspectives in Radiant Joy, Brilliant Love originate from a context that is broader than our familiar culture and modern culture. That context is woven into every word. The new context is what provides you with new possibilities. So try to get as much of that into you as you can. About me, I almost gave up attending the university in my third year because I was dissatisfied with what I was being taught. I loved my field of physics, but I was immensely disillusioned about what I thought a university should be. It was 1973 when I took a three-month sabbatical from school to read books from a list of titles I had gathered from respected friends. The questions I wrestled with felt immense and complex. What is a human being? What is life? What is a man? My three months quickly came to an end with no definitive results. I stuffed my writings into a manila envelope and returned to classes. My unanswered questions sank into subconscious to fester for a year and a half. In the fall of 1974, I discovered that the magic of the mind had been busily weaving a new set of neural networks for me. Complete concepts began bubbling up in my awareness. I decided to create an experimental laboratory, not out of stainless steel and glass, but rather out of human intention and agreement. The laboratory would be energetic, a meeting format in which it was very okay to be yourself, to ask unusual questions, to try out new ideas and new ways of being. It would be an opportunity to be together that was at the same time safe, stimulating, and active. 
one night I dared to share this idea with three friends. I proposed that we get a group of students together for discovering what was really going on that was not being taught in classes. They were in the laboratory. They were in. The laboratory would start with an introductory meeting. We set the date for Friday, January 10th, 1975. We reserved a room at the University Union and cobbled together some flyers to post around campus. The game was on. The game was afoot. I figured a few people might show up for an evening's discussion. By the way, one of the women in this audience, Phyllis Charlene Goldman, was one of those three people who put this meeting together. <laughs> she is here today. And I just, uh, I don't know. It's hard to thank a person for being so important in your life, but I still want to thank Phyllis again for being so important in my life so long ago, because really, without, without you being on the team to make that meeting happen, I'd probably still be a computer programmer or something like that. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Phyllis. Yeah. I figured a few people might show up for an evening's discussion. The meeting was set for 7 p.m. and by 6.30, people were already arriving. I sat pretending to be one of the audience. I had never spoken to a group of people before and had no idea what actually to do. As more and more people entered the room, I sat there nervously sweating, waiting for some kind of inspiration to move me to my feet. But nothing came. It was only perspiration, not inspiration. Finally, at 10 after 7, my friend Roger Tabor shoves his elbow in my ribs and says, hey, you have to go up there. You were the guy who thought of this. I remember creeping to the front of the room and facing more than 75 eager listeners. I don't remember a word that I said, but the next week, on Thursday evening, 15 people showed up at my apartment for a meeting. They continued showing up every week for the rest of the school year, and the experiment worked. From then on, whenever I lived after that, I would put up flyers and assemble a new team of experimenters from the local townspeople and we would continue to meet every week and ex continue exploring the edges of what was possible together, which by the way, turns into possibility teams these days. This is what a possibility team is. And we still meet on Thursday nights. The material in this book comes from working directly in these small groups from our commitment to provide for each other whatever was needed so that we could take the steps we wanted to take for authentic personal development. We found that the commitment needed to, to come we found that the commitment needed to come first. It needed to become first before we knew how to produce the results that we wanted. Such commitments took either foolishness or courage. And as I look back, I can see we had both. We learned that authentic commitment created a necessity to which the universe could respond. I mean, there's, a, there's huge secrets in this book, and that's one of them. It's like if you can learn how to create authentic necessity, it will shape how the universe works for you, which is very cool. Things would turn out unexpectedly well for people at our meetings. They had fun, and they would keep coming back to do the experiments. We used a simple method that I now refer to as rapid learning, a method of trying something immediately, extemporaneously, instead of figuring a strategy out in advance. It doesn't matter what you try. 
because whatever you try produces some kind of results, either favorable or a flop. The universe is a giant feedback generator, quite dependable for saying what works and what doesn't. Rapid learning was simple. If it was working, we keep going. If it wasn't, we shift our approach and try again. It was and I was and still am a rampaging note taker. From these early stages on, I wrote down the feedback we got from the universe. My bookshelves are filled with three ring binders overstuffed with hand-drawn diagrams and experimental process descriptions. I paid very careful attention to what worked and what did not. Things not working did not stop us from proceeding. They challenged our imaginations to invent entirely new procedures. The distilled results slowly collected themselves into what I now call possibility management, a new way of working with people, both individually and in groups, both personally and professionally, a way that creates clear communications, responsible, enlivening relationship, imaginative innovations, and effective results. My commitment to the universe was that whatever secrets it revealed to me, I would document impeccably and share as widely as possible. That is why I worked so hard to bring this book together, to complete my end of the bargain, because the universe has certainly kept its end. What was learned? Working in small groups, in trainings, and in possibility labs, we figured out how to voyage into spaces of incredible clarity. That is, we learned to use group intelligence in nonlinear ways to bypass ordinary limits of perceiving and relating and could enter new territory repeatedly. We learned how to plug directly into the source of unlimited possibility which turns out to be an archetypal principle or bright principle, a force of nature, as George Bernard Shaw called it, a facet of archetypal love out of which the entire universe is made. We learned how to navigate our group to the center of what author and artist E.J. Gold refers to as the great labyrinth of spaces. We could go there predictably, repeatedly, as a felt sensation, and then to stay there for three or five days in a row and work for what people wanted and needed. We discovered entryways into the same spaces that other explorers and researchers had entered to retrieve the clarity and poetry that they brought to the world. Antonetta Lilly, Charles Tart, John Holt, Joseph Chilton Pierce, Eric Byrne, Martin Heidegger, Thomas Gordon, Linda Adams, Stephen Cartman, Valerie Langford, Rupert Sheldrake, David Bohm, William Glasser, Ilya Prigogine, Carlos Castaneda. Even the way that healers and saints reportedly work with people became familiar to us. I spent a number of years attempting to establish workable alternative cultures. I have a hand up here. Hold on a second. Yes. Go ahead. Uh, can you speak more about the Great Labyrinth of Places? Yes. The, the book is about that, but I will let me mention it briefly. The Great Labyrinth of Spaces is, for example, when you walk into a post office, there's a certain kind of a space. You can feel it. And when you walk into uh, 
a stadium full of people where there's going to be a concert, or when you go to your parents' house, or when you stand at line, stand at a train station, or every one of these spaces has certain qualities. Well, if you put all of these spaces on a map, a gigantic map, this is the great labyrinth of spaces. And so knowing that there is a map and that, that spaces are unique, that spaces context and have a purpose and that you can you can navigate from one space to another with questions and with attention and that uh, the different qualities of spaces include for example bardo spaces which are spaces of sort of dark confusion that you just can't ever get out of until you leave the space all the way to ecstatic ecstasy and communion like oneness so this there's one space that E.J. Gold would refer to, and we'll get to it later, called the center of the labyrinth. And I'll just say this now, just as a, as a thing. It's like when a man puts his attention on a woman, which is what a woman wants. The woman wants the man to put his attention on her. Because when a man is holding space and puts his 100% on attention on the woman, the woman can wake up and remember the way to the center of the labyrinth, and then she can take the man there. And so this is, this is where we're going with this. That's why I mention it here in the book, is that you already know there's a great labyrinth of spaces, and we're learning to hold and navigate space, and there's ordinary, extraordinary, and archetypal spaces. And the center of the labyrinth is one of the archetypal spaces, and we're designed for that. It's built in and it takes skills and initiations to get there. And we're designed for that too. So really what next culture is, is the culture that provides the skills and the initiations for, for being able to navigate the great labyrinth of spaces, including occupying and constantly reinventing the center of the labyrinth, something like that. Thank you. You're welcome. Can, can they hear you? I'll, I'm going to mute myself for a second. And Chloe has an idea for me. Good. Good. So every and ask you to share the notes or the insights that you've had for a few minutes. So I'm going to read one and a half more paragraphs till the end of this section, and then that time will be there. Here we go. Back to the book. I spent a number of years attempting to establish workable alternative cultures, only to find that the experiment failed each time due to human emotional conflict. My focus turned to learning more about relationship. I became hungry for the guidance and, and I saw input from a series of traditions, including Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. His Maharishi Mahesh Yogi's Transcendental Meditation, Jose Silva's Ultra Mind System, as taught by John Nagara in California, Paramahansa Yogananda's Self-Realization Fellowship, 
Gurdjieff Foundation meetings with Ron Bozenket, who just died last year. I was in touch with him until then. He's in Australia. And E.J. Gold's Institute for the Development of the Harmonious Human Being. And since 1989, I've been a student of Lee Lozowick and the Western Baul tradition. In case anybody didn't know, Lee Lozowick died in 2010. In 1990, I changed careers from designing computer hardware for biomedical research to designing human thoughtware for developing relationship intelligence. In 1995, I moved to Europe. In 1998, I started our training academy in Germany by delivering the first Expand the Box training in March of 1998. Today, the work continues in corporate trainings, possibility labs, trainer labs, and a whole game world of possibility management. Great, the next section is called how to use this book. We're taking a pause for a minute to just, if people could share a little bit about what you've, what's going on, like what notes you've taken or what you're thinking about. Who would like to share something? Yes, Katrina. Hey. Hi. Um, sorry, it's loud. So from the sections we've been reading, but also from other books I've been reading, it appears to me that the, um, somehow the man seems to have a, a more active part in creating a space for the woman or the relationship. And I'm really not sure about that, if that is so, or is it just the same, or is it just different sides of the same coin and each of the two has their parts? But there's a question in me about this, the man having a more active part. I'm gonna, let me say a couple of things about that. I think it gets there in the book, but if we're speaking archetypally, the masculine, whether that's, whoever is occupying the masculine or enacting the masculine is, is nothing. The archetypal masculine is nothingness. It's like a, it's like a, a zero. So a zero is a number that says there's nothing here. There's a space here. That's what a zero is. And men are not initiated into their nothingness. And so they have, they're terrified of it. Men are terrified of their inner nothingness. And they put, the, they try to put an ego over the top. That's why, that's why men are so occupied by being, trying to be something. I am a great violin player. I am, I am an owner of a business. I have a cornered office. I have a million dollars on my bank account. I drive an Alfa Romeo. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I have, seven million viewers on my YouTube page. I, whatever, whatever the thing is, you know, I have a cool watch. You know, it's like men are try, busy trying to be something because what's really they are is nothing. This is why, this is why uh, it's like a man's ego is so thin that when a woman comes up and says hello, it's like 
sneezing into a wet toilet paper, just, you know, it's like men distract or go away or try to, you know, make this, um, this like show, you know, they try to put this show on and it's, it's, if you ever thought, you know, that the negative unconscious manifestation of the masculine, the negative unconscious manifestation of this nothingness of the masculine is stupidity. It's aggressive stupidity. So if as a woman you ever thought, or even a man, if you ever thought this about yourself, that you're, you're stupid and empty, it's archetypally true. It's not inaccurate. It's an accurate perception. So the how wonderful it is to have so much nothingness available as a resource. And so like, like right now, in our conversation right now, we haven't built enough framework or context to have the conversation about the value of the nothingness of the masculine. But it's fantastic. It is fabulous. It's what's in gaps. It's this amazing sort resource of, of, to create out of. And so it's necessary for men to be able to create because they're faced with the feminine. So the feminine, the archetypal feminine is everythingness. Like this infinity sign, you know, it's like, it's like everythingness. And so it's like, this is why women spend so much time looking through mail order catalogs it's because they're trying to figure out which of the multiple everything this is that they are to be today that's why you have so many clothes in the closet you know it's like you have so many choices of which perfume to put on or lipstick i don't you know so i'm going to get in really bad trouble i can tell <laughs> so so the un see so this is why yeah this is why this is why a woman's list of things to do for the man is longer than the man's day because the woman feels everything that's broken, everything that's wrong, everything that's not working, everything that could be better, everything that needs to be changed, emptied, cleaned out, fixed. It's like horrible. It's a painful thing to be everything, to be this everythingness. And so the uninitiated feminine tries to be just one of the things, which is impossible really because she's everything. So when you can sink into your everythingness, then, 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 it in, and you encounter the masculine, it's kind of like a garden. Like, so the feminine is this abundant garden. But if you don't have a fence around your garden, then any dog passing by the neighborhood takes a shit in the garden, right? Or people steal the vegetables or whatever. It's not, so the masculine is the fence. It's just basically the distinction of the space. This is a held space. And so, and also there's an additional thing about the masculine is that, you know, the garden grows and grows in a, in a beautiful environment. There's water, fertilizer, there's sunshine, there's attention. The thing just blossomed. There's no more path anymore. It, this is when the masculine needs to come in with the cutting scissors and go, ch -ch -ch, you know, opening the closet and all these shoes fall out and you go, honey, it's time to clean the closet. Like, this is a this is a very mature, delicate interaction between the masculine and feminine. Is when the feminine does her thing, 
that's transformation and healing for the masculine and the masculine does the, the transformational healing stuff for the feminine. It's, a, it's an amazing uh, collaboration. It's a creative collaboration. It's an ongoing creative collaboration. So there isn't any such thing as like the man has the active role. This is not what this is trying to say at all. The, yeah, it's just, it's this, um, this is what the next culture is about. It's, the, it's, the, it's a creative collaboration between the masculine and the feminine. And what I wanted to say was <clears throat> the relationship itself, I don't say it so much in this book, I don't think, is we, we sometimes think relationship as a thing. We think of a relationship as a thing. I have a relationship, I don't have a relationship. My relationship needs to be worked on, it's broken, it needs to be fixed. I, I lost my relationship, my, you know, all these concepts of relationship as a thing. And so then we try to hold on to our relationship or protect our relationship or whatever. And then we have this thinginess about relationship, which is a materialistic relationship to relationship. So you, you can easily pick that up from, mod from modern culture as a, as a, as a thinginess about relationship. And in fact, this is, this is going to, you know, when, when, you, when, when people come together and there's, you know, God gives us three months of paradise and in, in which time we better get our shit together and figure things out. Because after the three months, what you have is this mechanical reaction to the irritants that the other person is to your psychological construct. We call it the box. The book talks about this. So when your box is reacting to the other person and you don't have the tools, you don't have the clarity, the, you don't have the workability, the way to work with it, 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 it'll be over. You know, it's like, it's, it's ecstasy for three months and then it's like more and more, and then you go numb. You basically go numb. You have to numb yourself to the reactivity, the resentments that you build up, the unfulfilled expectations, the projections that aren't completed, you know, all those things. And if you, if you don't know how to negotiate, navigate, renegotiate, handle this stuff in the moment ongoingly, then you go numb and you go more and more numb. And then you end up with like my parents, you know, they stayed together their whole lives and they were pretty much dead as, as I knew them, they were pretty much dead. And so what it turns out that relationship is an ongoing action of nonlinear creating. It's ongoing nonlinear creating so that your partner doesn't know what you're going to say next. So that nobody, they, your partner cannot predict what you're going to have for breakfast. So you, your partner doesn't know what, what potential you're going to unfold today. So your partner doesn't have a, a construct where they can put you in as if they know what you are because you aren't, you cannot be known. A human being cannot be known like that. We aren't, but we've been, but in modern, in the ordinary world, in the ordinary relationships, we've, we've been taught to think that we can be known. We can know, you know him? Yeah, I know him. He has my partner. Of course I know him. The thing is a, such a degradation of the potential of holding space spaces that are unpredictable where nonlinear possibility occurs unexpectedly moment to moment and 
there's aliveness there. That's aliveness. And that's totally, we're designed for that. You know, we went to school where they cut off our imagination, but you can get it back. And you can jack into access nonlinear possibility. You can, you can use your gremlin for that. You can, you can turn on inter, inner and external resources so that you, you don't, so that when you run out of stuff in your mind, you still have access to a huge abundance of possibility for creating. So it isn't, it isn't like the masculine has the active role. In fact, it's quite often uh, that the woman needs to hold space for the man in terms of stuff happening, liquid states, breakdown, transformation, clarity often comes from the woman. So it's like it's, it's balanced out that way. And Chloe has her hand in the air. I am muting myself. Okay, we're in the same room, so the feedback would be really bad. Um, I just, from your question, Katarina, the only thing that, that sort of is coming to me um, is that, or, or a couple of things is, I think the pain of a lot of women that I meet or work with, and also my own pain of, okay, if I need a man to hold space for me to unfold, then where am I going to find this man? Who, who are those men who can do that for my everythingness? And the pain to realize that almost none. There's almost no men who can actually do that because they're not initiated. And to face into that pain of, and then what? You know, how, okay, how do I, so how do I become who I, how do I unfold? And, and then, so then it would make sense to have this question of, okay, why would I need a man? Like, I don't want to wait around. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to have a guy who is going to finally grow up or, or yeah, get his shit together. And so I think that's one pain. And, and, and I think it comes with a sort of another answer of can, can we women take a stand for men to grow up? And how does that really work? And how can we make offers for that man to grow up in the way that they can hold space for us without manipulation, you know, as a, like with them having a real necessity for that to happen. And okay, how do we make that kind of offer? And I, I have, I think it's like a, a big question. I, I, I think it's a whole research field about how we can make those offers. And then the other thing that I never really thought of, but it came up when you were talking, is I think somehow secretly us women, and I, I don't really say that as a criticism for men, but I think secretly we just have been handling, we think we just handle everything. At home we handle everything, with the kids we handle everything, uh, with the husband we handle everything. And to imagine that we could trust a man to handle something with us is like unbelievable. Like, yes. <laughs> and so I, I believe that. Like I, I, I have very little men I could trust to handle something with me. I would rather handle it myself. So yeah, those are the two things I came up. Thank you. Thank you. I have a question for Clinton. Uh, can I talk for a minute first? Can you hold it? Yeah. 
Yes. I want to, there's a, I, put, I typed into the chat window a website called initiations.org. And if you're in Brazil, you might have to type in initiations.mystrikingly.com. It is a website in which we've been uh, describing what we mean by authentic adulthood initiatory processes. And what, what that is, it's like an in-depth journey into what initiations are that have been missing in modern cultures for 6,000 years. Initiations into adulthood have been excluded and banned for 6,000 years. So humans don't get to grow up. We don't we get to be like fully developed butterflies still stuck inside of a chrysalis, not able to come out into the world because to come out in the world needs a shock, needs a transformation. Transformation has been forbidden in modern culture. You can learn things in your mind and understand things in your mind and know things in your mind. The transformation is an entirely different technology that's required for human beings to grow up. And it isn't just a one-time thing. It isn't like getting a driver's license and then you've grown up. It's a lifetime series of further and further developments into adulthood and capacity. So one of the things that I would encourage for people here in this conversation is to, is to become an initiator. So what that means is figure out what it is you need to learn and go deliver that through writing articles, building websites, do talks, trainings, workshops, um, writing books, making videos and webinars. And just because it's oftentimes that the best way to learn something is to teach it. And I don't mean becoming a teacher because possibility management, there are no teachers. It is not becoming a master or a teacher in possibility management that doesn't exist in our context. It becomes, you become an experimenter. And the point is when you have done the experiments enough times with yourself, you can provide and hold space for that experiment for other people to have that experience. And that's every experience that allows you to take more responsibility than you could before is an initiation. That's like the definition of initiation. It builds the thing in you that allows you to take more responsibility. And responsibility is just consciousness in action. Responsibility is applied consciousness. So the thing that allows you to take more responsibility is expanded consciousness. And so initiations expand consciousness. They build the matrix in your being to hold more awareness. And then you can be more responsible. Then you can create more stuff in the world. That's initiation. And I would encourage you to, to start figuring, just chart defining yourself as an initiator. When you do that, you put yourself at the edge of modern culture as a bridge builder to next culture, as a facilitator of the shift to next culture, you will start meeting some interesting people. You will discover that there are in fact males or females who are interested in transformation, who can collaborate with you to put things together. They can collaborate with you to put things together. You start working together, you end up working together for a long time. Um, there are forces at work beyond what most people think about. There's the Earth Coincidence Control Office. 
you know, you, it's called ECCO, it's ECHO, the Earth Coincidence Control Office. If you think about your last partnership, if you think about your last relationship, how did it happen? Did you, um, you know, make a list of the ideal characteristics of, the, of your ideal man or woman, and then you went to the, the club and picked one out and said, there, there she is, there he is. Okay, that's going to be my partner. Did that happen for you? I don't think so. Most people I talk to, that has never happened to them in their life. Your, new, your partner shows up by accident, shows up by coincidence. And so, it's okay, okay, so who's, who's, who's monitoring the coincidences? Well, it's the Earth Coincidence Control Office. Okay, so let's say you really thought that you wanted to have a partner or a relationship as an experimental laboratory to develop your consciousness. Let's say you really thought you wanted that, but you've been sitting around for years and nobody showed up. Well, my theory about that is that you're on this shelf in the Earth Coincidence Control Office, and they, they keep looking at you and go, ah, you don't fit for this, ah, you don't fit for that. And you're just sitting on the shelf because they didn't, you know, it's like you grab one of the books, it has to be the right book for the situation. So, so what my theory is, if you throw yourself into a transformational path, then you won't be the same thing sitting on the shelf all the time in the Earth Coincidence Control Office. You will evolve into something that they all of a sudden go, God, we need that. And they pull you off the shelf and slam you together with somebody and the thing starts happening. So that's, that's why I would encourage you to become an initiator because then you yourself must be on the initiatory path. As you provide initiatory process for other people, you yourself are on that path or it's fake. And otherwise you're some expert, you know, talking from your mind and in, in the past and not really present and not in the process. So that would be a proposal. And the, so, I think that was both the things you were talking about. Is that right? You were talking about where are the men? And the other thing was. Yeah. Yeah. So the only way is by working with people. You, you will only find people to work with by working with them. And of course, of course. Everybody has an underworld. Everybody has a gremlin. You will not find a perfect person. Even yourself are not perfect. And striving to be perfect doesn't make you perfect. This whole perfection thing, you need to write, you have to write, get out a piece of toilet paper, you know, and write, write it on the piece of toilet paper. I have to be perfect. I should be perfect. I dedicate myself to trying to be more perfect. I will please my mom and dad if I'm perfect. I will be happy if I'm perfect. You write all this stuff on a piece of toilet paper and then wall it up into a ball and flush it down the toilet. You should do that before we talk again next week. Yeah, because, um, yeah. So, but you can develop negotiation skills. So when people are being idiots and assholes, which I've, I've known a few, then you, you can negotiate. You can say, this doesn't work for me. Stop. This is over. We have an agreement. You didn't keep your agreement. Are you going to do this? Or here's the consequences. Here are the consequences of you not keeping your agreement. Or this doesn't work for me. Like, what is, uh, 
I mean, yeah, I was I was trying to write something today, and Aunt Chloe was over there listening on her headphones to some music and crashing the dishes around in the cupboards and is slamming everything away. And I'm going, Jesus! And I'm, I, I I withstood it for about three minutes, and I just like, hey! And she goes, what? I go, could you please be quieter? <laughs> and she didn't know she was making the noise, but it was it was horrible. So then then she was she was quieter. So even little tiny things like this in the moment, negotiate them along the way. Because if you don't, you will get resentments. And it only takes one resentment to kill intimacy. One tiny little resentment will kill intimacy. You can make a vow to never allow yourself to have a resentment. God, you're going to get the whole book in one night. <laughs> no, it's like, you know. This is so straightforward. You know, if you have if you if you have an assumption, if you have a story, if you make a conclusion, if you make an assumption, you assume something. Like I assume and Chloe is gonna uh, make a space for me to write in that's quiet and safe and won't shock my nervous system. I assume that. And because I'm a smart guy, I think my assumption is true. So that changes my assumption into an expectation. So now I have this expectation. I'm aimed at Anne Chloe. I go, Anne Chloe, you know, I expect that you see that I'm working on a very precious website, you know, and I'm this is very delicate information. I, I expect you to hold this quiet space for my nervous system. And then she doesn't keep my expectation. Then my expectation is broken. In the moment, that my expectation is not fulfilled, I create a resentment. And then I have a resentment. And having a resentment kills intimacy because <clears throat> when she comes over and puts her hand on my shoulder and says, honey, dinner's ready, I don't hear that. What I feel is the resentment. So that I think, I think how many people know what I'm talking about? Okay. So this is the science of resentment. Don't go there. Like, figure out, like, make a, this is practice. This is a life of practice. This is negotiate, negotiating in the seed. You cannot have any, you cannot enter the domain of resentment. You cannot. You have to forbid yourself there. Ah, yes. It's, we have 13 minutes left. Uh, does somebody else have a question or a comment that they'd like to share about Flamake right now? Yes, Doris. Yeah. <clears throat> I was on you since uh, some days, uh, really, to enter in uh, intimacy. And I thought the whole time is so precious what, what you're doing here. Um, I would like to share with him, is it possible? Um, yeah, this is one question. Is it possible to um, maybe that he could share the second one that he could be part of? One question. I don't know if he would like to, but um, it feels it got a lot of in in resonance. This is point one. So point the one other is, one, the yeah. answer to point one is this is an open group. So oh, okay. anybody can come or leave. It doesn't matter. You can miss you can miss twenty of them and. Doesn't matter. 
we will just keep reading the book and having conversations like this to transform your life from the ground up. Yeah, because it's, it's precious. Uh, I feel a lot what gets in resonance and wow, wow it's, I'm getting like the whole stuff. And I was, I was in the, in the before because I was between two men and I saw a lot of, I saw okay. a lot of my assumptions what's, and all that stuff. Second? What is number two? And the second is, um, because it is a man who, who before he told me he cannot sleep with a woman in a bed. Hmm? Um, and for me, it was like a reason. So I cannot go further with him. I have a proposal. I have a proposal. Yeah. Does anybody here would like to talk with Doris about this thing with the man who cannot sleep with a woman in a bed? Anybody have any ideas about that or insights? I want to want to talk with her about that. I will. This is Mia Lick. Okay, I, I'm I'm happy. Oh, okay, Mia. I, do you know? Yes. Do you have Doris's contact info? No. Dor Doris, can you put your contact info right now into the chat room? Mia will pick it up, and you guys you guys have that conversation, okay? Hi, Doris. Thank you, Clinton. Okay, Doris. Yeah. Good. Vera, you had your hand up before. You yes. Had a question before. Yeah, what, what's that? You, you said it was painful for a woman to be everything, so she tries to be only one thing, um, and that doesn't work. And so it's kind of like the process to uh, accept her everythingness. Uh, that was the first time I've heard she tries to be one thing. Can you say a little bit more about that? Accepting the everythingness and trying to be one thing. I would encourage you to try something else, which is to dedicate a certain amount of time each day from five minutes to an hour maybe to being the great mother. Being the all. So if you're if you're walking outside, there's buildings or trees or road or, or earth or sky or clouds and rocks. This is you, and you walk in it as you, and you let your identity shift from go personality construct to being grounded in the entirety. The entirety. I mean the all as a, as a self experience and then it will become less interesting to you probably to try to narrow yourself down to be something that people can comprehend or can name or can own or can um, specify or even command or hardly even talk to like it'd be less interesting just less interesting to be that almost neurotic kind of modern culture personality cult thing and so you just kind of gradually get yourself accustomed to being the great mother to being one with everything to being the all to being and that will and if you take your time with it you know do it for a couple months you know five minutes a day half hour a day an hour a day and just move through rooms like that brush your teeth like that the all is brushing its teeth the all is is buying apples you know the all is whatever making this phone call 
um, and just keep it. You'll have a broader connection into the vast feminine archetypal nature that is is yours. You're this direct access to it. It's an, that would be a really um, I would encourage that experiment rather than what you were asking for. Yes. Thank you for the experiment. You're welcome. Who had their hand up? Athena, you had your mm -hmm. hand up? Yes. Um, uh, earlier, I experienced that you wrote this book uh, for our four bodies. Yes. Yes, you said that when a man makes a space yes. for a woman, then she can awaken. And this sentence ne nearly made me cry and fed my emotional body and spiritual. And um, what you said, and Chloe, um, it happened to me that I had a space to be awakened during a coaching with a man that I, not in a relationship, but he just made a space for me to discover myself. It was great experience. So um, I'm looking forward to read your book, Clinton. Thank you. I just want to say that it was not so long ago that we were able to name the fifth body and how it works and how it's used and what to do with it, et cetera. And the reason is, is because the ones who were researching in that domain, the ones who were researching, we had to get our four bodies kind of balanced out first awake. You know, we had to get our emotional body online our energetic body online and have awareness balanced out kind of in those four before all of a sudden it was like, Oh my God, we have a fifth body and we are that and it is such an amazing experience to be connected with another person in their fifth body because it's this archetypal commitments and archetypal forces and archetypal processes and archetypal conversations and archetypal vision and archetypal motivations and just this whole archetypal domains open up and we're totally designed for this but it doesn't unleash itself until we have the four the four bodies together so this book didn't know that yet we didn't know that yet even the conscious feelings book i don't think you knew that yet so yeah but yes thank you and i thank you i'm so glad you had that experience because then you know the it's not just bullshit that I'm yeah I, I want to add that i awaken and I discovered I'm 40 years old and I discovered that I'm a higher sensitive person so that was a revelation yeah yeah most of you on here are high sensitivity people most of you and that's the sooner that you own it like Athena did the sooner you take responsibility for that your whole life will make a different kind of sense it will it will you will become uh, Oh, yes, that's why I, I feel compassion. This is why I have to block off so many people. This is why I'm so angry when people lose control or go, you know, put their feelings out or they project on me. I just lose it. And it's because you're a high sensitivity person. The fact that you're even here having this conversation tonight and doing this little journey is 
it means you're a high sensitivity person. There's not one person on here I see who's not high sensitivity. And I'm so glad that you could just say that in the space. Thank you. I have just one quick question. Is the great mother, the all, the one with all, is that the archetype of the queen? Or is that something different? That's different. Yeah, I mean, no, the queen, the queen is, you know, so many people have used that word. The word is almost unusable. So, but, um, but there is something to understand about the queen that's useful with regards to our conversation. And I see we have just three minutes left. But the thing is, if you imagine the king and the queen in a kingdom, like in a queendom, in a space, in a, they're in the role of the queen. And it's usually kind of like the king sitting on the throne and the queen standing behind the king with her hand on his shoulder so that she knows he's there. And sometimes leaning down into his ear and whispering and saying, uh, that's uh, Duke Orson, and he just bought the property on East Borders, and he's planning a war. So, and, and you go, ah, thank you. And it's like there's this relationship between the point man. The king is usually like the point man, the target, the one who gets attacked. And the power behind the throne, which is the queen. The woman had to sit on the throne and sit there and face, you know, the people who came to argue about who owns which cows. It would be so boring for her. You know, the man has to handle those problems. And the woman, she's handling everything. So if man is doing the point thing and the woman's doing the everything, it's a, it's a fabulous collaboration. It's a fabulously rewarding and productive collaboration. So that's one way to get a grip on this queen thing and the king thing. It is useful for that. But you just be careful because it's not the same as the all. It's not the it's not that thing. Okay. I feel glad that we have started this together. And um, we will be back online next Monday at same time, same channel. And you're welcome to come or not come, and you're welcome to invite friends or not invite friends. And any last comments on the way out? Anybody need anything right now? Uh, note from Patrizio, thank you. Thank you. All right. All right. Well, it's so wonderful to see all you guys. And have a great week. And take care and Thank see you, you again. Thank okay. You. Thanks, Clinton. That was awesome. Thank you. More in the future. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Scott. Okay, you guys. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm leaving. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> to see you. Good to see you guys. Thanks. <laughs>